Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, church. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. It's going to be good to study God's Word together, and uh, let's do that together. Um, before we do open God's Word, um, an announcement today at 5 o'clock. The staff and deacons and our team will demolish, destroy everyone else that signs up on the wrong side. Well, I think Kyle is Kyle here. Kyle's the coach. Prepare, Kyle. Just prepare for your team to go down. Just down. It's going to be. No, seriously, if you want to come see that, you might need to go somewhere else. But if you want to come see some people make fools of themselves, especially me, well, why don't we just come in fellowship? Would you mind coming tonight, 5 o'clock? A couple of things you need to know. Number one, bring your food for your family. Bring a potluck. I didn't bring any, so bring. Somebody bring just a little bit. This has never happened in a Baptist church, but someone bring a little too much. Has that ever happened in, in this church? Someone brought a little too much? Someone bring a little too much, but I will be sampling. Okay, so I'm sorry I didn't bring anything, but I will bring my appetite. Five o'clock. Also bring a lawn chair. Bring a chair. Or if you sit on concrete, that's fine. But if you bring a lawn chair, I think you'll be a little bit happier. We're going to have a good time in Jesus. Is that okay? Is that all right to have some fun in Jesus? Amen. All right. Now, we've talked about coming back from being down and out, the woman at the well. We've talked about coming back from being freaked out, Peter walking on the water, Jesus coming to Peter, frightening them, shocking them. We talked about what, it, what we do with our fear and how to come back from it. And last Sunday, we talked about coming back from being burned out. All of those really apply to yours truly. I think burned out is my tendency go wide open, and when you're out of gas, pull over to the side and refuel and go again. Now, but that may not be you, but I think there is one that we probably would all admit that we struggle with, and that is stress or worry. Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said, I never worry. I am concerned a lot. I think that's her way of saying in a Christian way, I struggle with this. I am concerned a lot. I find myself worrying a little bit. Maybe that's not what she meant, but that's the way I take it. How about you? Do you find yourself worrying at times? Now, when it comes to teaching or preaching God's Word, I want to share with you what I share with my preaching class. And that is, uh, on every test, there is one multiple-choice question, and they know it, and they know they're going to get it, but they, if they don't get this right, this question right, I flunk them out of the course, not really, but I want to. And that is, when we teach, when we preach, do we make the Bible relevant or do we reveal the Bible's relevance? Is, is there something I have to do to this word today, somehow or another, to make it relevant so that here in 2016, with all that's going on in our world, Matthew 6 somehow or another makes sense to us? Or is it quite the opposite? Then in light of this week, this week, which has been crazy, amen? I mean, I'm, you're just going to have a hard time, uh, at least from this pulpit, finding out whether I'm Democrat or Republican, but, but I am a patriot, and I'm telling you, uh, I was a little ashamed of my country this week, and I hope that there weren't a lot of Christians out there writing vulgar things on vehicles and buildings, stopping traffic and putting people at risk. 
But, but whatever your political persuasion is, give it all you got. Get behind it. But this one thing you need to know is when you win or when you lose. Man, know who's in charge of this world. Know who's king of kings and lord of lords, right? And by way of introduction to Matthew 6, I would like, oddly enough, to take you to John 11. It's, it's not our focal passage, but I'd like you to, to join me in John 11 to see that uh, as we look at worry or stress... One place we could go is asking the question, what was the fuel, what was the motivation, what was the driving force behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Some of you would say, well, it was a crowd that once said on Palm Sunday, hallelujah, hallelujah, save us, save us. And then turned and said, crucify him, crucify him. It's the fickle crowd. We've seen the fickle crowd, have we not? I really think it goes deeper than that. I, I really think it goes deeper than Pilate and, and, the, and, and the actual tribunal and the, and the false trials that happened all that night. I think it goes back to where I'm going to take you for just a moment in John chapter 11. Would you join me there? John chapter 11. Now listen, this is the way we're going to launch into our passage by looking at another passage, which is a little out of the ordinary, but would you use this as fuel for kind of understanding what worry and stress is? Therefore, many of the Jews, verse 45... Who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. And apparently, this is a refrain. What's going on? What's happening? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now here, I think, is where it all began. How does Satan incite the crowd? How does he start the crucifixion of our Savior? Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. When you hear someone say to you, you know nothing at all, it usually means I've been thinking about this. I've been having some self-talk. I've been talking to myself. I've had a conversation in my own mind. And in this conversation goes something like this. Don't you realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? There's the gospel Satan has, and the gospel God has, and there's, there's the message Satan has, and the message God has, and here it is in one. How can that possibly be? How can the message Satan has to say and the message God has to say be coming from one mouth? Well, well look at what he says. You know, one man has to die that the nation not perish. What does Satan mean through Caiaphas? What is Caiaphas' self-talk? If you and I want to have our nation, if you and I want to make it and, and come out still having our place and our nation, then Jesus has to die. He is expendable. We must live on. He must die so that all of us can live. Now, I'll just finish up, and then I want to go towards our text. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jews, Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Good morning, scattered children of God. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Aren't you glad to be one of God's scattered children? I'm so glad. To bring them together and make them one. 
From that day on, they plotted to take his life. Here's what I'm saying. If you want to go to the inception of Satan's plan to take Jesus and kill him, not that it didn't happen before, but it seems to germinate and come to full fruition in the self-talk of Caiaphas because of stress, because of worry. And the Sanhedrin was worried. The, 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 the gentle, careful, fragile balance of our nation with Rome being, uh, so to speak, our lords, our boss. If we mess this up, if the popularity of Jesus continues to rise, Rome will certainly take action. So we must take action. I'm going to ask you something. What do you do with your self-talk? The passage in Matthew 6 we're going to look at is almost all occupying or taking place in your own mind. So how damaging could that be? For me to preach on other passages, maybe you would say, I really think that you're getting to something good here. This is what we need to hear about. But, But really going into my mind, why would Jesus take us into our thought life, our self-talk, and have us deal with it? Because just like the self-talk of Caiaphas springs forth or gives birth to a maniacal, satanic plot to kill Jesus, so can we be taken away by our self-talk. And, 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 and I will admit in this passage that, that God hits good look, licks with crooked sticks. He is going to accomplish His plan, right? He is going to do His perfect work. I just wanted to see that. And, and as we look at Matthew 6, would you look at verse 25? Jerry, if you just go ahead and bring that up. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? If you're going to come back from stress, you're going to come back from worry. If you tend to have self-talk that is divided, that is struggling, then you're going to have to hear these words as he says, listen, your life is more than what you put in your mouth, your life is more than what you put on your body. Pay attention to what really matters. And here's what he's saying. You, you really matter. Next slide, please, Jerry. For us to understand this passage, we need to see that the word anxious, also used in Philippians, where he says, do not be anxious about anything. This word is a word that means to be divided in your mind, to be split or have talk that goes in different directions. It's why we'll see in a minute one of our favorite passages is really best taken in context. We'll see it in a minute when he says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. But, but bringing that into this context, here he's saying, do not be anxious. Do not have a split mind. Seek first one thing and then your mind won't be fragmented and have to be defragged. You won't have too many windows open if you use uh, windows. And sometimes I like to have as many as possible and sometimes my phone has too many apps open and sometimes my life, more importantly, has too many thoughts and they're flying apart. My thoughts are flying all over the place. And it's the stress coming at me creates more thoughts and more windows and and more concerns. And as I am undivided and fragmented, Satan has me right where he wants me to be. Not seeking first him, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Now, 
Have you studied fly neuroscience? I mean, I'm sure someone here has. I've, I've not studied fly neuroscience, but I read an article about how flies think. Now, this may have some practical benefit for you. I don't know. You ever tried to swat a fly with one hand? It's pretty hard to do. Now, you come and watch our team tonight. We have amazing hand-eye coordination. I just had to throw that out. I, I see some of you laughing. I don't know why you're laughing. But, you know, no matter how good your hand-eye coordination or your, or your foot-eye coordination is, you, you try to swat or kick a fly, and his neuroscience is geared towards that. But here's what they say, fly neuroscientists. Yes, your taxpayers' money is probably paying for that. But anyway, you, you take a tissue in both hands, all right? And you take a tissue, and you kind of begin moving it back and forth as you're moving towards a fly. And the fly is going, what, what, what? And it's kind of struggling with which way to go because if you keep your hands equidistant and continue to come towards the fly, you can get the fly because he's immobilized by his thoughts being fragmented. You're dismissed. <laughs> Those are your favorite words, but you're not dismissed, Okay. If a fly can be frozen and be swatted, so can a believer in Jesus Christ who gets his mind or her mind fragmented. So here the Lord says, don't let yourself be that way in your self-talk. Don't let your self-talk end up going different directions. Now, if you don't know what self-talk is, uh, all you married couples will know what self-talk is. Let me just quickly, if you're not married, just try to apply it. But have you ever gotten up early and you said on a, tomorrow, Friday night, you said to your husband or you said to your wife, tomorrow we're going to get up and work in the yard. Well, you got up, you know, at the time that you're supposed to get up, right? And you went out and worked in the yard about 7 or 7.30 or 8 in the morning, right? So you're out working in the yard. What happens about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock? Eight, eight, 8 o'clock rolls around and that bum, that husband of yours is still sawing logs, right? What is your self-talk doing? It starts like this. Well, he better get up. He better get up pretty soon, but I'm okay with it because he worked hard this week. About 9 o'clock, your self-talk goes like something like this. That, there's scripture about this. <laughs> Go to the ant, you sluggard. That sluggard better get up. About 9.30, you're pacing, you're throwing the shovel. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're just walking. You know, when he gets up, and then he gets up. About 10 o'clock, he walks out there. Well, hey, cup of coffee. Booyah, you're laying to him, Right? What happened? You know what that's called? That's called self-talk. Everybody has self-talk. And we have to watch it. Our thoughts can fly apart, and then the results can be clear. So let's look at how this works. Let's bump through it rather quickly together. Would you look at verse 26, please? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them. We talk about childlike faith, and here the Savior says, well, you need bird-like faith. I, I, my mom loves birds. I, I like being around people that like birds. She has books on birds. I showed up the other day to work on The first thing she wanted to tell me is, guess what I heard? The geese are coming to the pond. And one of the deep, abiding things I love about my mom is that she's a bird watcher. It brings peace and serenity and a sense of focus to her life. And it will, but if you watch birds or if you don't think about birds right now, God takes care of them. They don't have barns. You'll never see a bird building bigger barns and better barns and more barns. They don't store up hay 
for in their barns. They, they just trust God to the seasons instinctually. And so our Father says to us, we ourselves need to trust God at least as much as the birds do because he's arguing this way. Here's a typical bird, a sparrow, and in Israel at that time, sparrows were a dime a dozen. These blackbirds are just everywhere. He says, if you think you don't matter, here's a sparrow. You are much more important than a sparrow. Next slide, please. Would you practice saying this in your self-talk? I am more blessed than the birds. We're going to continue our responsive reading. Would you say this with me? I am more blessed than the birds. Say it again. I am more blessed than the birds. And it just sounded good coming off your own tongue, doesn't it? Maybe you'll say that this week when you're driving. Don't you love that Jesus used, he didn't say, go to Egypt and see the pyramids. He didn't say, make a pilgrimage to some great wonder of the world. He said, just walk outside. As he's there on the Sermon on the Mount, on the side of the mountain, don't you think he probably just looked up and said, you're more blessed than the birds. Maybe when you see a bird today or this week, I hope you'll say, I am more blessed than the birds. Next slide. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Here's what he's saying. By worrying, do you add a minute to your life? Now, now what he's not saying, listen, he's not saying by problem solving, you can't preserve your life. I mean, that you can't extend your life. He even promises in one of the commandments, if you honor your father and mother, you will what? Live long in the land. Man, I'm telling you what, I want to honor my mom. She's 85 years of age, and I just want to make sure as best I can to honor because then I can live long in the land. There's a sense of promise there, right? But, but seriously, as you, as you take care of your body, as you, as you take precautions, but that's problem solving. That is not what he's talking about. He's not saying, hey, never think, never problem solve. See, to problem solve is to look at a problem and to focus, to focus. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about worrying is to have your mind split, divided, and fragmented. He's saying this, in your fragmentation, in your worry, and you're putting two things side by side with God. Here's God and here's the thing. Did you really add a single moment to your life? What if instead you'd have sought Him first and you'd made Him Lord? And someone here today may be saying, how do you do that? I've never done that. Let me tell you, it's simple. Children do it well. The way you come to know Jesus Christ is by faith, by faith. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to purchase a place for your, you in heaven. And then in believing and trusting Him with childlike faith, you receive that as a gift. And that gift is free. And you say, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I know my mind has been divided about how to get to heaven. And I've had all these thoughts, but I want to just trust you and you alone. I'm going to be focused and, and, and see that you've solved this problem. And I'm going to seek your forgiveness and your righteousness as you give it to me by grace. So this is what he's saying. You, you can't add anything to your life by being fragmented, by being single-minded. You can have not only a full and abundant life here, you can have eternal life forever and ever. And you cannot have eternal life until you become that one-way kind of person. Jesus said, I am the way, not one of many ways, I'm the truth, not a one, um, one among many truths, and I'm the life. I'm the only life. And he 
will come to me and know me and know the Father through that. Do you have that one single focus? No man comes to the Father except being this one single focused person. Now look, next slide please. George Mueller put it this way. Uh, I just want you to, as you look at that picture, go, that's got to be an old tin type, right? You're going, some of the people are going, where did you find this old corn dodger? I would say many of us, if we were honest, would admit that we stand on George Mueller's shoulders. Students of church history, just trust me when I say that this man was the father or the founder of many orphanages. In the middle of the 19th century, he founded many orphanages and uh, care for orphans and those in need stands upon this mighty man's shoulder. He, a man of prayer and a man of faith. And, and uh, took millions of dollars in without ever seeking. He just trusted God and prayed for it. Here's what he said about worry. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The beginning of truth faith is the end of anxiety. You were saying that thanksgiving and worry do not go together. Next week... Jeff Davis will be your preacher. I am excited that I get to see my youngest grandson. We're flying to Salt Lake City. But I'll tell you, you probably get another message on Thanksgiving. But can I give you a foregleam of the thought about Thanksgiving? That what I love about Thanksgiving is true Thanksgiving and worry cannot occupy the same body. Did you know that? The same soul cannot both worry and fret and be divided at the same time he or she gives thanks to God. To be a thankful soul is to be a worry-free soul. Next slide, please, Jerry. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Next slide. Would you say with me, I am more lavished than the lilies? Together, I am more lavished than the lilies. A little alliteration today, but it'll do you good. You are more lavish than the lilies. Um, you know, lily was a common flower in this day. For me, I like to think about blue bonnets in the spring. I love when the blue bonnets come up in Texas, don't you? And the Indian paintbrushes. I have grandchildren, and uh, you know what they like to do on my knee? When I try to think about how God creates flowers, I, I, I'm reminded of when I play with my grandchildren. Some of you have children this age. Have you ever noticed their favorite word when you get them on their knee and you, you bounce them on the knee a few times and you play ride the horsey, ride the town, ride the horsey, don't call found, fall down, they slide down your knee? What's when you, when you do that and you slide them down the knee and they hit their bottom on the, on the floor, what do they say then? What do they say then? Again! Again, right? Isn't that what they say? I have grandchildren. I was playing with Emery yesterday, one of my grandsons. And we were playing on the trampoline, and it's all sealed around. It's got one little hole where I can reach through. And he'd say, push me down, Poppy. I'd reach to the hole, push him down. He'd get up, he'd say, again, for like, like an hour and a half. You know, I think when God makes blue bonnets or lilies when he makes flowers, I think he makes them and says, again, again. You say, does God have that heart? I believe he does. I believe he just spontaneously loves making flowers. I mean, you see that in his, when God loves the, the lavish and beauty of, of lilies. And so here we are once again say, and if he loves making flowers, he loves you. He loves blessing you. Here's that spirit of Jesus saying, you're worried in the midst of your heavenly father who has that again mindset. He says, I will do this again. I will love you again. I will forgive you again. 
Oh, how we need to understand the heart of God is that he lavishes on us love greater than he lavishes the lilies. Next slide, please. Verse 30 and following. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be divided in your mind, anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Mom, what are we going to eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Mom, I don't have anything to wear. Isn't this just like us? We worry about, we're divided about, we're concerned about these basic fundamental things, and why should we be? Here he uses the illustration of grass, and this is a shot of, well, next slide, please. This is a shot of East Texas ryegrass. This week, I bought some Gulf Coast ryegrass and put it in a broadcast sprayer and drove over five acres, and I put out ryegrass. And right now, watch me, I'm growing ryegrass. Am I good or what? Multitasking here. Preaching, worshiping with you, and growing ryegrass. Ryegrass is an amazing thing, is it not? You just broadcast it, weather gets cool, God does the rest, amen. Here they say, look, at, as you're driving today, maybe you'll see flowers and say, I'm more lavish than the lilies. Or maybe you'll be looking out and just see beautiful ryegrass coming up here in a little bit and say, man, I am, I am more graced than the grass. And that day they would bind up the grass tight so to speak and make it sort of like a log and use it for fire for fodder it's just common couldn't be more common now here i would think as i was driving in today that maybe if jesus was preaching here he would say see that pine tree y'all ever seen a pine tree around here there are a couple of them aren't there and they're beautiful i love them i was in west texas a couple weeks ago those are bushes. They call them trees. I don't know. Those are bushes. But I think the Lord will say, see that pine tree? You know what's going to happen to it? In time, it's going to be cut down. It's going to be felled. And then it's going to be harvested. It's going to be made into lumber. Just common two-by-fours all around the southern United States. Or some will be burned and burned in a fireplace. But he said, if, if your father carefully watches... Every single ring in the growth of that tree and doesn't miss a single leaf or pine needle. He knows every one. If he cares about that pine tree in your backyard, don't you think he cares about you? Could he get his point across to us any better than he has? This is so crystal clear for us. It's not that we have to make it relevant. We just have to see that it is relevant in our lives. He lavishes the lilies. He blesses the birds, and he graces the grass. But it's just one message. He loves you. Would you repeat after me? I am more graced than the grass. Together, I am more graced than the grass. All right, thank you. That blessed me. If it didn't bless you, thank you so much. Next slide. For the Gentiles, the pagans, seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I slipped in the NIV's translation to see that what the NIV's, NIV's trying to do here is to say that in case you're thinking Gentile and don't know what that means, from the perspective of the original hearers, what Jesus was saying is, there are my people, and they think a certain way, but you know what? 
the pagans, people that behave in ungodly, horrible ways, they, they run after all this stuff. But my people shouldn't. We understand why there are riots. We understand why there are confusion and chaos in this world. But he's saying, my people shouldn't be running after material things. My people should not be known for what they wear or what they eat. My people should be known by who they are, that they're children of God, and how they love me and live out my word. That's what he's saying. Can I ask you a question? Next slide. May seem kind of unexpected to you. Are you superstitious? Are you superstitious? I think if we caught, if, you, if I caught you afterwards outside and said, "Are you superstitious?" You say, "Oh no, I'm not." <laughs> I remember growing up in Leon County. I had a friend. He had a pickup truck. We go riding. When a black cat ran in front of his truck, you know what he'd do? He'd skid to a stop, trying to stop before he got to that trail. He would throw open the door. I'm in the passenger side on, a, on, on a, one of these Texas roads. He would jump out, run around the truck, and spit and make some kind of... <laughs> he'd get back in the truck and say, first time he does it, what's that all about? As cars are coming up behind us, you know? He goes, oh man, black cat ever runs. In front of your truck, get out and spit. You won't have bad luck. Thanks for that education. Now, you're learning more about Leon County than you wanted to know, I know. Black cats, walking under ladders. <laughs> Friday the 13th, I used to work in downtown Dallas, and I would always be surprised or odd. I could count from the outside how many floors there were. And then I would get on the elevator and notice there was one more floor. You know why there was one more floor? Never a 13th floor. I'm going, really? Come on. Superstition is everywhere. It's in the country. It's in the city. It is common for people to cross their fingers. Or I hope this sermon goes well. Knock on wood. We, we have our superstitious thing. Do you like baseball? If you don't, just watch a little bit and watch the, the mannerisms they have before they bat. And then watch the next game. The same player, Elvis Andrews, he has the same mannerisms. And he won't change those mannerisms. Some of them I know are motor skills, and he wants to do the same things to get ready. Some of it, baseball players are incredibly superstitious, aren't they? And so we can be too. He said, why are you talking about this? Well, I'll tell you. Next slide. Worry acts like a rabbit's foot. Thomas, uh, his name is Bevelichek is a professor of psychology in Penn State. He formed a worry group. To wipe out worry, he formed a worry group and started studying worry. And I'm going to cut through all that he wrote about or said, but here's what he talked about. He said that worry kind of triggers in our mind the same kind of euphoria or feeling of magic. Because the reason my friend ran out and spit <laughs> was he knew that, that would ward off any bad luck that might come to him, right? Or a broken mirror. Oh, man, bad luck is coming. He said that for more civilized people like us, we worry the same way. If we worry, we know it will never happen, right? One guy told me, they said, I don't know what you're doing talking about all this worry. I, I worry, and nothing I've ever worried about has ever come to pass. I'm thinking, you hear what you're saying? And he's looking at me like, do you hear what I'm saying? It works. You worry, and it never happens. But listen, God's people, it, it does serve sort of like a rabbit's foot. When we worry, we believe falsely that something won't happen. And I notice that some of you are not amening right now. 
Because don't you just love to worry? But what is it doing for you? How is it helping you? It acts just like superstition. I'm going to trust in my worry more than I'm going to trust in my Savior. We do that. Our minds are divided in this way. All right, next slide. And here's that verse, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now do you see what he's saying in this passage? It can be lifted out of this context and still be sung as true. Because it is true. When we seek God first, things come second. That's what he is saying. But when you put it in its context, this is what he's saying. When you have a single-minded devotion to God and you worship him and you focus on him and you trust him and you depend upon him, these things will take care of themselves. But when these things are out front, it's never enough. It's never sufficient. It will never meet your needs. And so your life will be fragmented and you will have challenges in this life. Next slide, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there's a woman's devotional written by Max Lucado, and probably some of you have read it. If not, there's a part of it that I want to talk about for just a moment. This woman's devotional has is, got a section on it which is called um, what ifs and howls? What ifs and howls? The burden of worry. Next slide, please. What ifs and howls? Pretty creative title. What if is is kind of being fun, like the family of the what ifs and the family of the howls. But the what ifs are those that say, "What if I marry a man who snores?" I worry about that. My wife doesn't worry about that anymore. I snore. She just uses earplugs. I mean, quit worrying. Well, or or how, how will we pay for the kids' college? So in this whole section, he's got something that I think is rich for you. And this is what he says. We need to practice saying about worry and things that we're thinking are coming towards us that may never come, problems that are out there looming towards us. He said we need to learn to practice saying when the time comes. Here's his first illustration. I don't know what I'll do if my husband dies, he writes. You will when the time comes. Next slide. He says, when my children leave the house, I don't think I can take it. It won't be easy, he writes, but strength will arrive when the time comes. Listen to me. There was a time when I thought that grace came from God in units, and everybody got the same number of grace units. Like from heaven, God sends to me five units of grace, and you get five units of grace. And I started reading Scripture and realized that grace is much more dynamic than that. Did you know that? And that's what he's teaching in this passage. When the time comes and you need more grace, guess how much grace you're going to get? All you need. Now, can't we go through this again quickly? Isn't that what he's saying? You're more blessed than the birds. What is he saying? If you think I'm watching the birds, and I am, what about you when your hour of tragedy or trial or challenge comes? I will lavish grace. The grace will come until you're filled to overflowing it may not be an emotion but it will be sustenance and it will be strength and it will be faith and it will be power from my word to you and the lilies are lavished and I'll lavish you with my grace and the grass is everywhere and then it's gone you are mine and you'll always be with me and you're here I'll grace you more than the grass 
God's people, when we learn that God's grace is dynamic, listen to me, listen to me, if you take nothing else away, when we learn that God's grace is dynamic, not static, when it can, it can flex according to God's will and move and expand and be all that we need, when we see that, then we don't worry about tomorrow, what could happen tomorrow. You know why? He's given us strength for today, right? Enough for the day. And so what will happen tomorrow? When that trial or tragedy or our challenge comes, what will He give us? Strength for that day. Is that right? Isn't that what He's saying here? That's a promise. That means that today I don't need to worry about tomorrow as if somehow or another like a rabbit's foot. That will keep it from coming. It will come. It will come from God's hand by His permission. And when it comes by His permission, it can only come by His permission, He'll give me grace. And by the way, I see that in God's people over the years I've pastored. I see it in people here today that God graces you. And I see that that grace is strong. So I have confidence as I watch you filled with grace. I know I was filled with grace when my dad died. And I know I will be filled with grace in the challenges that come tomorrow. Next slide. So the key is this. He says, meet today's problems with today's strength. Don't start tackling tomorrow's problems until tomorrow. You do not have tomorrow's strength yet. You simply have enough for today. That's his paraphrase of the 34th verse. Isn't that good? Isn't that rich? Don't worry. Now, you're going to help me finish out this sermon, I hope, interactively. Because I contend and believe that the Bible, and the Bible teaches that thanksgiving and thanks living and worry and worry living don't occupy the same body it's like trying to inhale and exhale at the same time why don't you do that right now just <gasps> try to try to but you can't can you you can only you can either inhale or exhale you can either worry or you can thank so would you help me wrap up this message as i look at this in kind of a silly way true thanksgiving and worry are incompatible mutually exclusive unable to occupy the same soul so next slide we're gonna do a few of these and hopefully you'll do them with me i'm thankful the teenage, for the teenager who is complaining about doing the dishes because it means, I, I have some thoughts, but would you, oh, come on, help me, because it means what? What? God gave us a child, that's good. Anybody else? We're able to eat, we had food. What else? We have dishes. <laughs> some people don't have dishes, that's right. What else? Clean water, right? What else? He's not on the street, Amen. Would you rather have a teenager complaining about doing dishes or one in rehab today? I'll take the complaining, amen? Next slide. I'm thankful for paying the taxes that I pay. <laughs> I'm not going to get any response, I don't think. But, 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 but because why? I make money, right? You don't have to pay taxes if you make no money, right? I'm thankful for the taxes I pay, taxes I pay because of what? I got a job. I'm blessed. Good. Good. Next slide. I'm thankful for the mess of cleaning up after Halloween because it means... Now, by the way, we had Darth Vader and Princess Lee and their whole family here. I'm thankful for the mess of cleaning up after Halloween because what? It means what? What? Got friends. I, I made a friend here by taking the picture. I stopped and said, hey, let me take your picture. I made a friend. What else am I? I'm, I'm thankful for this mess of this party because what? I'm still able to get up the top of the barn and put it away. We got to see Uncle Sam there, didn't we, at Halloween? I'm glad that Uncle Sam came, brother. 
Well, I'm, I'm thankful for this mess that we're after this party because of what? We were able to serve the community. Boy, oh boy, uh, uh, like 49 or 48 people said, I would like a visit from somebody at this church. Wasn't that right? 48 people, 49 Abbey, something like that? I'm thankful for the mess that, was at, that we made at Halloween because of what? Anybody else? The what? Because it was Halloween, and we made Halloween into ho- Holyween, didn't we? Good, good. Next slide. I'm thankful for the clothes that fit a little too snug. My clothes fit a little too snug. His clothes fit a little too snug. Because what? What? Because we ate well, right? We're going to eat well tonight. I'm thankful because my clothes fit a little too snug because that means what? I'm healthy. Man, I'm, I've got more than enough to eat, right? Next slide. I'm thankful for a lawn that needs mowing, uh, gutters that need cleaning, leaves that need raking because that means what? I have a home. What else? What else? The seasons are changing, right? Next slide. Cooler weather. Amen. Next slide, please. Next slide. I'm thankful all the complaining about the government. <laughs> Come on now. It's, it's getting harder. Isn't it? I'm, complaining for, I'm thankful for all the complaining about the government, not the, uh, not the violence, not the vandalism, not the destruction, but for people that say, I'm going to voice my concerns about the government. Because you know what that means? We have freedom. Man, as soon as I saw this, except for the vandalism and all the violence, I said, let them speak. These are the reasons our men and women fought this Veterans Day. I thank the Lord this Veterans Day for people that offered their lives, like my dad who served, like you and others who have served, because they served so we could say, let them speak. Next slide. I'm thankful the person who sings off key behind me, but I don't want to point to Clint. I don't want to say anything about Clint. I don't want to single out anybody, Clint. Sorry about that. I'm thankful the person who sings off key behind me because it means what? They're worshiping, right? What else? They're singing, right? They're making a joyful noise, right? Because we're in church, right? Because we are the church, right? The other day I was at a church in Burleson. I was in the back right. And this lady was singing as loud as she possibly could. And every fifth note she got right. I kind of had to slide to the side and see. Because I know this is where everybody, I was the only one that isn't a regular in this section. You know what I mean? Reg, this is my section, right? The center section's over here. The saints are over here. Just kidding over here. I'm just kidding. I'll sit there next Sunday with the sinners. So I was in the section. I turned and looked. Kind of slightly looked and nobody noticed a thing. They were just happy in the Lord. Man, I love church. I love being the church. I love being with the church. Next slide. I'm thankful for Jesus who died on the cross because that means I have eternal life. That means what? A relationship with God. That means salvation. That means forgiveness of sins. That means could we not go on and on and on the worst thing? We started with this. Caiaphas in his self-talk, in his worry, in his stress, never came back from it. He never came back from his stress and spends eternity in hell. Jesus goes to the cross. By the way, 
It was no accident. Caiaphas was in the control and hand of God, John writes, mouthing it accidentally to tell us forever. The reason Jesus went to die on the cross was so that the nation and all the scattered children would not perish, but have eternal life. And he said, no one takes it. No one takes my life. I give it. I give it. Woo! That's good stuff right there. Don't you think we ought to end on the cross? Let's do it. Loving Father, it's been fun to show, to be shown by you the power of your word. Father, I worry too much. My mind gets fragmented. I know that's not right. But thank you that we can see in this passage that you can bring us into sharp, clear, crystal focus about who you are. Father, if there's someone here today, they've never come to the cross. They've never thought about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for them. They've never made that real to them. Today, I pray that they would pray and receive your gift. Father, in fact, just pray that right now, this is what they'll pray. If, you've, if you're here today and you've never prayed this prayer, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. For those of you who've never accepted Christ, uh, just if you want to, I'll tell you what you could pray. It's between you and God. You don't have to say it out loud, but just listen. Say this to God from your heart. Dear God. I know I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And he rose again. I invite you into my life right now. In Jesus' name. Father, for all of us, that didn't pray that prayer, we recommit ourselves to you to live a life seeking first you as our king and your kingdom and your goodness and righteousness as our righteousness. And all the things that we came in here worried about or concerned about, help us to put them in focus. Or maybe a better way to say it, help us to put them in the right priority. Give us one devotion, one love, and one heart for you. And then we'll trust you with all these things that are coming at us this week. Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.